This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. This book that we are going to talk about with the amazing Ibi Zaboy called Nigeria Jones has completely snatched my life. It has snatched my life. I have the printed version. I have the audible book version. I've got actually two printed versions, the audible version. And I have spent the past several weeks sort of engrossed in this story, which felt so familiar. It reminded me so much of what I have experienced both as a child who was raised in a family that had a lot of black nationalists in it. It has felt a lot of what it, it reminded me a lot of what it is to be the child of an immigrant who's trying to raise children in a, in a line with, with their, the home country values while living in America. It is absolutely fascinating. And I would expect nothing less than my dear sister or from my dear sister, Evie Zaboy. Uh, she is a New York Times bestselling author of Get your pens and pencils out, folks. She's got she's got a lot here. Uh, in the New York Times bestselling author of American Street, National Book Award finalist, Pride, a contemporary remix of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, My Life as an Ice Cream Sandwich, which was her middle grade debut. She's also the co-author and the, of the Walter Award and L.A. Times Book Prize winning Punching the Air with prison reform activist, uh, reform activist Dr. Youssef Salam of the Exonerated Five. Uh, she is the uh, editor of Black Enough. Stories of Being Young and Black in America. Her debut picture book, The People Remember, one of our favorite books for Kwanzaa, received the Coretta Scott King Book Award. Her most recent book, Our Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Estelle Butler and Okoye to the People, a Black Panther novel for Marvel. This latest book, Nigeria Jones, is absolutely ripe for this time. Evie's a boy. It is a pleasure to have you back, sis. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Let's give you a warm round of applause so we can get into this conversation. And we're not going to go until we get the round of applause because the button's been sticking. So you're just going to have to wait after that. Yes, there it is. Evie, it's such a pleasure to have you back first. Let me just properly, formally thank you for being back with us today. Let's talk about Nigeria Jones. How are you, first of all? How are you doing? How, what, what is all of this meant for you to have this baby, this latest baby out in the world? Talk with us about your experiences around this book. You know, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me again, Laurie. Uh, as you know, this book has been very hard to write, and it's even harder to talk about it depending on who I'm talking to, who I'm in conversation with. And I, I need to be in conversation with people who really um, connect to the ideas and the characters in the book because it makes the conversation that much richer. Uh, yeah. So as you know, as a traditionally published author, I go any and everywhere to talk about my books. And, you know, sometimes I'm met with blank stares and sometimes it's curiosity, sometimes it's fetishization, and sometimes I get an amen corner. So it mm. runs the gamut in terms of talking about this book. Um, either people are learning or people are, you know, seeing themselves in the pages. And I have to pivot every time. Yeah. <laughs> I have to yeah. Pivot, but I feel like I can be my authentic self, mask off, hold switch off and get real with you. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing your thoughts about this book. And thanks again for having me on your show. 
I, I love everything about this, EB. I'm going to actually read the inside jacket so people are aware as to the world we're about to enter. For those of you who have not gotten your hands on a copy of Nigeria Jones, a novel, uh, this is what we're going to be talking about. This is the, the world in which EB Zaboy draws all of us. It begins, Warrior Princess. That's what Nigeria Jones' father calls her. He has raised her as part of the movement, capital M. A black separatist group based in Philadelphia, Nigeria is homeschooled and vegan and participates in traditional rituals to connect uh, her and other kids from the group to their ancestors. When her mother, the perfect matriarch of their movement, disappears, Nigeria's world is upended. She finds herself taking care of her baby brother and stepping into a role she doesn't want. Nigeria's mother had secrets. She wished for a different life for her children, which included sending her daughter to a private Quaker school outside of their strict group. Despite her father's disapproval, Nigeria attends the school with her cousin Kamau and Sage, who used to be a friend, and there she slowly begins to flourish and expand her universe. As she searches for her mother, she starts to uncover a shocking truth, one that will lead her to question everything she thought she knew about her life and her family. I read that. I knew what I was about to get into. We had talked briefly about it. And yet, Evie, girl, <laughs> the way you describe this, the separatist group, I know this group. I have seen Black liberation groups and Black revolutionary groups doing their best to, to create freedom schools for their children, to create independent alternatives. We've had uh, folks on this show from the, the documentary, The Sun Rises in the East, who talked about one very successful effort to do that here in New York. We saw with MOVE in Philadelphia. We have seen all across the country these efforts of Black people recognizing that freedom cannot be ours in this space if we are fully participant in perpetuating this space. So we want to create this independent entity, institutions, provide for ourselves, claim for ourselves, name ourselves, speak for, we want Kuji Chagalia, Evie's a boy. And your book highlights the complexities of going about creating that type of world in this space. What was the origin story for you here? How did this one get birthed? Oh, wow. Well, you know, and I want to add that in the process of this book has been out only for a couple of weeks, but in the process of putting it out and talking about it, other people have come forward. I'll be in conversation with a woman by the name of Dara Mathis, who wrote a, a piece in the Atlantic about her experiences being a part of the Shrine of the Black Madonna. So I've heard mm. about it and I didn't know how deep it was. And other people are coming forward. Hakeem Madabuti out in Chicago, third world, yes. had a rites of passage kind of, you know, freedom school uh, type of thing. So all these people are saying, you know, I grew up like this. I grew up like this. I, however, did not grow up like that. I did. Wow. I'm Haitian immigrant and I'm bringing all the elements of being Haitian immigrant in America. We are constantly, we were constantly holding on to this idea of Haiti. Um, but we had to assimilate and, you know, I, I didn't get sent to a Quaker school. I went to a Catholic school. So the, all these experiences I brought into my character's, um, journey throughout the book, but I did join a lot of communities, um, in college, post-college, I'm still part of certain communities. And as a writer, as writers do, we observe, we play very close attention, to why aren't these thriving like they should, you know? Mm. And, and why have they not stayed? A lot of them started in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and just withered away. And I did watch that uh, documentary, The Sun Rises in the East. And I have friends who went to Yuhu Sasa 
in Same. Brooklyn, which literally means freedom school in Zulu. Uh, so, uh, and I, I loved hearing them talk about the way things were and it's, it's simply not that anymore. You know, I, I think, uh, there's just this, uh, nostalgia for what used to happen. And I'm constantly mm. questioning why isn't it still happening? And as, mm. you, as you know, we're both looking for these spaces and trying to create these spaces for our young people. And it, it's becoming harder and harder. Um, I do know people who still hold on to those things, but it, the numbers are just not there anymore. So this is the story of one 16, 17-year-old girl who is deep in it because her father is a leader of this uh, separatist group. It's a nod to the MOVE organization. It's not about the MOVE organization, but I, I said it in Philadelphia mainly because... Um, because Philadelphia and Pennsylvania as a whole were, was started by a separatist community. And that was the Quakers who were right. historically the first abolitionists. Uh, so there's a lot to say about Pennsylvania being what a, a purple state um, <laughs> founding with William Penn and his ideals of what a nation could be. So I, I threw everything in there because I felt like I didn't have, I, I wouldn't have another opportunity to tell a certain kind of truth in this way. Mm. I gotta be honest with you. I have some cousins uh, who grew up in, in some of these types of groups, you know, like the, the Asara sets and, and you know, the, they had a lot of the Queen of Fu. And, and I remember, you know, cause we were adjacent, right? We were like the Kamals in the story. <laughs> like we, were, we were like there, but like, we were like, yeah, also in the Christian church. So, so we were adjacent and got to observe. And, and, you know, I have multiple family members who have polyamorous relationships as a part of their religious duty and their, their cultural practices. And so, you know, a lot of times my audience is like, you got so man you got the church you got buddha you got, I got a child you don't even know the half okay Black <laughs> you don't american even... experience you've got it there yes in one family yes and i remember seeing them as a kid and actually i'm planning to get the book as and gifting it to my cousins who i who were very much a part of some of these spaces and you know they have had a variety of reactions some of them raised their children still in these african-centered separatist spaces others have you know departed some of them felt it was more cult-like at times of their life when they wanted something a little bit freer but one of the things that really trapped me into these pages was the fact that you artfully discuss how difficult it is to do that work, how difficult it is to create independent thriving institutions as black people, because we know other people can do it. But as black people who are trying to, to adhere to a, a liberation ideology, a black liberation uh, approach to, to the world, it's extraordinarily difficult to do so. And as you mentioned, some of them started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and they have withered and the loss and the longing for that, we can sometimes be so involved in love with the story that we don't actually engage in a rational critique of some of the failures that we should probably know about so that we prevent them uh, being replicated going forward. You also in this book deal a lot with the role of black women in these spaces and it's subtle, but it's so subtle, it's right in your face. Talk with us about some of the complexities from your observations uh, that confront black women who are also committed to creating these black separatist spaces, but rarely do we see examples of these spaces in existence where there is equity between black men and women. Often it's, it's a, we're creating a black nation with the black man and the wife and the children. 
<laughs> like the wife and the children are there, but we we still have this sort of patriarchal approach. And you, I've certainly seen that in a variety of the groups that I've been able to connect with and observe, which is one of the reasons I, I have not chosen to raise my family in quite that way. Talk with us about some of the gender dynamics that complicate our effort to create separate thriving institutions while sort of holding on to an American approach to, to gender norms. And yeah, this was an observation, but it's all it was also how I was raised um, in a household, even if I went to Catholic school or Catholic church, we already know that dynamic with the priests, um, you know, having precedence and the the nuns being, you know, just right under there, uh, just mm. seeing it in Christian churches and um, Protestant churches where you have the ministers and you really have the woman, the women running the show, running the doing the daily work, the ins and outs of building community within a church community. And, mm. and and I saw it in in one community where it was woman centered. And you mentioned Queen Afua. I did uh, uh, do the Qu Queen Afua's sacred women. Uh, so did I. <laughs> we were probably in in crossing paths in that space. Oh, Hotep, Hotep, sister. <laughs> See, peace. But before um, Hotep became what we know it is today. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and I saw even in these women-centered spaces, the the patriarchy was just an underlying theme or an overarching theme. You could mm. not enter these spaces without having that male presence there and taken over, even if they tried to be um, women-centered. And the most women-centered uh, community I've been part of was really won by a woman and it was just a women's rites of passage. You know, it mm -hmm. was just about that. But it is one of those dynamics where if we were to achieve some sort of liberation, some sort of um, socialist dynamic where we dismantle white supremacy, whatever that means in our imagination, that we'd also have to take the next next step of dismantling patriarchy and mm. all bills that come with it. And I decided to tell that story from a 16 year old's perspective because as we age, as we become women, the dynamics change. You know, we right. are, are, you know, our, our ability to head a household, to create, you know, these sort of social justice organizations um, really get muddied when, you know, when men are present. Um, mm. So it's, it's I, I, I don't want to call it a feminist novel. I do want to introduce young people to womanism, this idea of womanism, where mm. you cannot dismantle patriarchy without coming to terms with your own uh, femininity. And by femininity, I don't mean like from the Western perspective, uh, the feminine principle being nurturing, um, being, you know, just this, this soft idea of healing community um, mm. and all those things that her mother would do when she was there, taking yes. in people, making the food, making sure that everything is okay. Because in the story, there's a young man that comes in wounded and the father is there to take him in, but somebody needs to heal him and give him a soft space to place to land before he goes into warrior mode. So mm. in that aspect is that if we do dismantle there, there is this, um, we do need that 
energy, right? We need do need that Ogun energy if if your audience knows what I'm talking about. Well, tease tease that out because we, they, I mean, you and I might know, and I'm sure there's yeah. a good segment that knows. But tease out what you mean by Ogun energy. Ogun is the Yoruba deity of war. It's a the masculine deity of war, and it doesn't always mean Ogun the the deity, the Orisha, as we say in the Yoruba tradition, is a man, but it's a male energy that women can possess as well so yeah. you can't have war without healing you know there's mm. a lot of and the the what happens to the women in these pages especially the girl is i can't be hard all the time i can't right. you can have me go into the shooting range all the time because i just want to kiss a boy you know mm. <laughs> i want somebody <laughs> to tell me i'm pretty you know, and right. we do have those um, young women or non-binary children who do want to, you know, shoot, sh tell me, let me pick up a machete. I'm ready for the fight. But th this particular character, her father wants her to be the son, the warrior that um, he never had, warrior princess. And it is, I am playing with those two words where can you be a princess? Can you be protected and loved and elevated and desired? while fighting for social justice. And I tried mm. to examine that through a 16 year old girl. I, one of the things I love is that, you know, I used to tell my son, mommy's a delicate flower. And he'd be like, mommy, you are not delicate. <laughs> like you are like you, what are you talking about? Mommy's a delicate flower. And there's this tension of trying to maintain uh, the warrior nature, right? Cause you're supposed to be strong black woman while recognizing my heart hurts. Like I have emotional pain and I'm, I'm struggling with, with the internal trauma. And I, one of the things I really appreciated is that you don't at any point in the book pit black man against black woman. You demonstrate the dangers of having a consistent warrior mentality without the healing. And, and you demonstrate the dangers of having the, and, and I'm going to call it masculine energy because that's what we do in this society, but it's not, it's that warrior energy. You can't always be in warrior mode. The building of a community like this requires architecture. Architecture is a form of science that requires the hard numbers and the beauty of art. You have to be able to incorporate the difficult decision-making with the beauty of, of, of tenderness, with the beauty of, of, of valuing the softer feminine emotions. I'm, I'm doing air quotes to, up to the sky at this point. Y'all will see this in the video. But there is this idea that we can destroy the system. We can tear down the system. We can... But tearing down something, E.B., is a lot easier than building something. And one of the things we exceed during this story, and I always give the example, if you want to destroy a building, just, art, you know, properly place some sticks of dynamite in appropriate areas, hit a button, a one, two, three, boom, a big mushroom cloud will appear, you will destroy the building. Building that building, reconstructing that building, that's a long, difficult process that isn't just about the building itself you have to test the soil make sure the materials are appropriate are there waterways that we have to be aware of how do we get act there is so much that goes into building and what we see in this story and as you mentioned with regards to the church for example it's the women energy that is used in our society for the building of things it's Wait, the masculine energy in our society that is used to either destroy it or take the credit for what is being built the black church being a prime example what are your thoughts about that framing i love that framing i you know i think we're very much we are so like-minded uh you know <laughs> and i say, and i was about to say that you missed a step you missed the cleanup step you know girl 
Girl, that's right. Because after you destroyed it, it's a mess. You gotta clean it. After that mushroom cloud, who comes and do Mm. the cleanup? And and I'm literally thinking of the you know the people in the back of the kitchen who's cleaning up and staying behind. And we in our like you know quest for liberation, we miss those steps. We're you know maybe we're not forward thinking, and um, in those communities where they don't last. I think there's some messes that happen and, you know, maybe we don't do the necessary work of cleaning up. I had Dr. Marimba Ani as my time professor. She she wrote uh, Urugu, an African-centered critique of European cultural thought and behavior uh, published by Third World Press in Mm. maybe, I think, the late 80s. Um, And that book really, really Thought taught me how to think critically. And in those classes, I'm, um, you know, I had, uh, uh, I, I, you, you just mentioned her name. Um, she was, she had the position at Medgar Evers, <laughs> the law center. Oh, uh, um, Esmeralda Simmons. Esmeralda Simmons. Used yes. To, My predecessor. Be, yes. Um, she would be in those classes, but I remember Dr. Remember Ani telling us the cycle of coming back to balance, which is Ma'at, the ancient Egyptian principle of balance, that there mm-hmm. has to be the destruction uh, and then the healing. You cannot mm-hmm. have destruction and coming back to balance. The healing process is the most painful process, the grieving process. Because in that, in when we're dismantling something, we are dismantling something that is part of ourselves. And I have to do that every single day. And it's not like one thing that we, you know, that is probably going to happen 50 years from now. Like I have to dismantle the white supremacy within myself. And this is the journey that my character has to go through. She attends this all white space and is trying to find out, well, what's this all about? What's white people all about? Why are they the devil? You know, <laughs> let me let, let me kiss one and find out. <laughs> let me find if you so bad. But it's the and it's my it's a metaphor for my own journey of stepping into the very white space of publishing and mm. constantly thinking about what sort of sacrifices I, am I making? You know, what am I destroying each time I step into a auditorium full of white children? How am I cold switching? What am I saying? What am I holding back? Um, and how does that make me feel when I am not my authentic self? It is mm-hmm. a, a daily practice. And in the metaphor for the, those communities is that, well, how do we sustain those communities? Do we need money? Does it become a not-for-profit? And when we become a not-for-profit, what sort of sacrifices that do we make in order to financially yep. uphold a cultural institution? Who do we take money from? <laughs> you know, and who who is who is who is financially benefiting from our communities first and foremost? Mm. You know, mm. all these questions that we have to ask ourselves individually first before we step into community, before we step uh, create these communities, and you know. I, I hope those answers are visible. This is something that needs to be unpacked. A book like this needs to be unpacked within community, you know? Yeah. And this is what I wanted when I was picking up those Toni Morrison novels at 16. <laughs> mm. Yes, you know, I you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about, there's a dichotomy that's coming up for me, theory versus practical application. We have, a, we have no shortage of Black revolutionary theoretical 
thought. We, we, we got books, we've got, you know, podcasts, we've got all sorts of, of real important theoretical uh, dialogues about what liberation looks like, how to build a liberated space for Black people. And then there's the practical application. And EB, I'm going to say something that I know is probably going to piss some people off, but there is a real gap between our theory and our practical application. And and I appreciate that tension because if we don't get that part right, then we will forever be theoretical warriors. We will forever be theoretical revolutionaries, realizing at the end of our lives that it didn't work, right? That it didn't. I'm thinking about so many of our elders who had theory, who tried to apply it, but because they did not get over these steps, they did not address the cleanup. They did not have a a D. I was going to say decolonizing. That's not quite the word I'm looking for. They didn't do the work of, of, they didn't do sufficient enough work. I don't want to say they didn't do the work. The work that they did wasn't sufficient to unpack some of these barriers and divisions that we as a society, Black people, have taken in and try to replicate. When we talk about, you know, two family incomes and, and how much tension there is around whether or not the man should provide. Well, how is the man supposed to provide when Black men can't get hired? Like, we got to have a different economic model. It cannot be that the man does the work and provides the bacon and brings it home. If you can't get a job, and I can And if your manhood is tied to that Western European idea of what a man is, well, then that's going to create dissension in our home. Certainly is going to create dissension in our village. The idea that revolution is expensive. Creating black separatist spaces costs money. People have to eat. And when we talk about some of the more successful examples, one of the things we realize is that when they ended up crumbling, it's because they were very successful for the people who were organizing them because those people did not have children yet. A lot of them were just coming out of college. Nobody had a mortgage. Very few had jobs. And they were able to be in this communal space. And then when you have a child and you need them to go to school, you're like, well, we'll just create a school. That's hard. Like it's not, it's not easy to just create a school. It takes so much more of our society and civilization building DNA. And that's a section of our DNA that we don't often tap into because most of us are tapping into the, the slave reality DNA. We're not talking to the ancestors prior to 1619 about how they created civilizations, irrigation, hydraulic systems. We're not talking about those ancestors. We're often stuck in the ancestors who were stuck in this space. I, I don't know if the, how that resonates for you what, what what would you say in in response to that you see me nodding so hard my head is about to fall <laughs> off girl <laughs> listen i feel like high-fiving you giving a hug uh because it the way that you just expressed everything just flowed so easily you know and it's hard to have these conversations because a lot of us have not gotten to the 101 level yet you know mm-hmm. and and I had to keep that in mind in writing this book. And I, I was telling uh, Karen Hunter that I had to make a career move. I, this was mm. a career move where I'm not going to explain anything to white people. You know, this is for the little black girl or, you know, yep. the adult to pick it up and say, wow, I had, you know, I saw myself in this. So thank mm. you so much for saying everything that you said, because I came into writing this novel with all those thoughts and all those ideas already, because I've done the reading. I've uh, spoken to people like you, been around like-minded people, been in these communities, so I could introduce these ideas in the form of a novel. So yes, yes, and yes, whatever the questions are with you, I (laughs) 100% 
agree with you because this was my think, thought, thought process and I could not have the, that sort of understanding before I wrote a book like this. Oh, and I'm bringing back to Dr. Marimba Ani really quickly. I want to share this with you and your listeners. One of the most profound things I learned in one of her classes that was called African Worldview. And, and we know that Africa is not a country. So we went all throughout the continent examining different traditions. And the Dogon people of Mali, and they're very mm -hmm. famous, you know, they live on the cliffs and they observe the stars way before Galileo have a system of initiation and their initiation requires four steps. Uh, and really quickly, Jerry So word from the front, which is the surface, um, Boloso, Jerry So Beneso word from the side, Boloso word from the back, Sodai word from within, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the understanding of an idea where you go from surface to insight, which is what literally means, and so means word in the Dogon language. And I don't know if it's actually called Dogon, but in like, it's understanding deep within what would require us to build community. But that process, the Dogon knew that it does not start with community, it starts with self. And mm. that's their initiation process, not for any sort of priesthood or anything, that's what the children have to go through. And we wow. all know the rites of passages happen in a lot of African traditions. And this is not something we have in our community here in the West at all. And you and I both know that our children really need rites of passages. And, that, and it's something that guides them from childhood to adulthood. And they don't just grow up, right? And as right. many of my elders say, growing old is not growing wise. So mm. there's something that they don't go through in order to let them know that they are no longer children. And it's a spiritual and intellectual, emotional, physical process. Dogon knew that you have to have insight first, know who you are before you reach that sort of adulthood. So this novel, Nigeria Jones, is a coming of age she doesn't go through an actual rites of passage, but I give her a rites of passage, an initiation process, so that young people and anybody who reads it can see themselves in the pages of, wow, what does it take to become yourself, to start the process of who you are? I One of the first steps I took, and you said it's not decolonization. I think what you were describing earlier is deep growth, deep programming. How do you mm. start deprogramming yes. process. And I do believe a part of that is decolonization. Mm. So it's children need to have a deprogramming process. Either they take it, you know, they take themselves through it or society takes them through it. Or in African traditions, the community takes them through it. The village takes them through it so that they are safe and protected because it can be a very dangerous process. And the Dogon people knew and other uh, um, traditional African societies knew that coming into truth, learning mm. something that is true can also be dangerous. When I mm. found out about, when I learned about slavery, right? And you people grow up knowing about slavery. When I truly understood what it is, and I was in college when an exhibition and a book called Without Sanctuary. Do you remember that Ooh, book? Oh, yes, the yes. Book? 
Um, and then there was yes. a exhibition at the New York Society or something like that. It was the first time I had seen anything like it. I had an outer body experience mm -hmm. and I like was convulsing and crying because I was able to see secondhand, right? And within the pages of a book through photographs, the horrors of right. white supremacy on black bodies when I had not been introduced it. Maybe I saw Roots or something like that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, and this was probably before Beloved, the movie. Maybe I read Beloved by that time, but it it resonated and mm. something broke, <laughs> something snapped. And I was never the same after seeing those huge photographs. Um, and you could see the horrors, you know, the, the white people yeah. and the white children are just sitting there, you know, it, it, like it's a barbecue, right? Right. And right. I and for them, it was right. So I had yeah. to change my name. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we... Like, no, we have we don't want anything to do with them folks. No, ma'am. Mm. <laughs> mm. I appreciate it. I do. We're going to go into commercial break on the other side of it. I want to come back and continue the conversation because for me, there's a, there's also a tension that you unearth between being born into these spaces and, and sort of taking for granted what they can provide versus being an outsider who comes to these spaces. And we see that even with, within religious communities, you know, if you're born in a religious tradition, you have one relationship to it, as opposed to if it's something that you come to later on as an adult, particularly if you come to it and it is a refuge for you, it is a, as a as place for you to rest after a life outside uh, that has been traumatic uh, and you do a real good breakdown of the the similarities and the differences between womanism and feminism through the eyes of two 16 year old girls sage oh my god she that that character right there she, i was like girl if you uh, uh, Oh, I felt all the things, but it was a necessary setup that really helps people to understand the difference between what black womanism looks like and what the traditional white feminism looks like. So we're going to go to commercial break before the man cuts us off. And we're going to come back on the other side. I am here with Evie Zaboy, 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK. We are discussing Nigeria Jones. Y'all, if you don't get the book, Jiminy, Christmas on a Cracker, you're just not, you're missing it. You're missing it. Head into commercial break. Much more to come. We'll be right back after this. Jones and, you know, Evie, on the previous side of the break, I mentioned the fact that you do a really great takedown of the differences, similarities, yes, but the differences between womanism and feminism through the eyes of these two 16-year-old girls. We've got Nigeria Jones, whose experiences have really rooted her, whether she knows it or not, to call it this, in a womanist, a Black womanist perspective of the world, recognizing that Feminism is good and it has been good for white women, but it can be very problematic for black people. And it can be if feminism is not interrogating itself to undo its own love affair with white supremacy, it can be as oppressive in many ways towards black women as our systems to black people generally. Talk with us about the distinctions between these two characters. You've got Nigeria Jones, her dear friend Sage, whose mother is white, whose father is from the continent, and her mother is, is kind of like Nigeria's father, but for the white birthing community. She, she's someone who is 
Uh, I guess you might call her a radical feminist. Uh, she helps, she's a midwife, and she creates a separatist society of sorts for women who are and pregnant people who are going through the birthing experience, who, who want to be able to have bodily autonomy. And your grip, oh my God, the way you deal with bodily autonomy and the Black maternal crisis, oh my God, I could kiss you. Okay, talk with us first. Womanism, feminism, Nigeria Jones, and Sage. Talk with us about how this dichotomy was able to just sort of fit in these pages the way that it does. Oh, thank you so much for picking up on that. Because as you already know, if your listeners are listening, I've gone from Black separatist movement to womanist, feminist, and the birthing community. And I chose the birthing community because it's the sect of feminism that doesn't always get put in the forefront. And as a mother, I've learned about the natural birth community early on. Um, while I was pregnant with my first child, I learned about Anna, Ina May Gaskin, who had a birth. Yes. Um, way 70s, 60s, hippie culture um, and white hippiedom <laughs> doesn't get talked about. And that those sort of radical left white centric communities are not discussed and I know them I know you know them too and they exist and they consider themselves allies but they can also be problematic in their own understanding of feminism and and she the character Katie is very holistic and maybe she had locks you know as a white woman um but her idea of body autonomy does not work for white women in that I'm still trying to understand how white feminism is harmful. I know how it is, but I had to work that out through those two characters. Mm, yeah. My character, Nigeria, still loves her dad. She loves her um, Black boy love interests. And, yeah. and and the other girl, uh, Sage, who is biracial, because I, I I don't think I can do justice to a straight white 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 girl in a in a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my editor was really helpful in saying that you know not helping me not make her a caricature, and I could get those wrong too because at the first drafts she was a caricature, but I wanted mm. to give her some nuance too because she's like f the patriarchy, and my character is like. I still have to answer to the patriarchy, you know, right. it's still, you know, you can't just say F the patriarchy and walk away because her being in that school is dependent on the headmaster who is a white man. Her being in that school or not being in that school is dependent on her father and, you know, just her wanting to uh, have a love interest. And she's a, you know, she's not queer. She loves her uh, boys, but she wants to kiss a white, she's interested in a white boy. A white boy is interested in her and she's desired in that way. So how do you navigate the patriarchy when they are still there? The men are still mm -hmm. in, in part of our lives. How do we include them in our journey without having them suffocate us or oppress us? How are mm -hmm. we in community with our brothers, you know, with our fathers? Our uncles, she is surrounded by these uncles, you know, um, who are her father's, you know, uh, her father's little toy, you know, street soldiers. So she has to think about the men in her lives in a very different way than white women have yes. to. Because being yes. part of a social justice uh, community, 
when things happen to black boys and, you know, and things happen to black girls too, but what makes it onto the news is the police shootings, the, the crime, all center black manhood and black boyhood. So if she's to be a social justice an activist and part of this um, radical community, how does she navigate and interrogate the role of men in her life? And it's a constant mm. struggle. And I believe that's what Alice Walker meant by womanism in that we have to be in community with everyone. We have sons. We have sons, <laughs> Laurie, where right. oh, we're trying to raise sons who value women, who respect women. We're trying to wait, you know, I don't know. We don't, I hear feminist men or feminist boys. I don't know if I've ever heard womanist boys, raising mm. womanist boys. Mm. That, 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 that for me, that the idea that on the white side of, of Sage's reality, she's able to say, fuck the patriarchy. And one of the things Brian and I, my husband always talk about is like, feminism can imagine a world where they don't have to deal with men because men are bad. For black women, we we ain't trying to, we well, we like our men. Like we we, we wanna be in community. <laughs> we ain't trying to not be in a community with no men. Unless that, you know, we're like the, the women in Kenya uh, where we have to establish a village of no men because of abuse. And that, you know, that is a resist, that is the reaction to an abusive patriarchal system. But ideally, nah, I, I love my strong black king. Like I'm trying to be in, we trying to be in, come build, on now. Right? Trying to build in all <laughs> senses of the word. Like babies. And what, yeah. Black babies, yes, and black love, hallelujah. Uh, one of the things that 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 I see Nigeria struggling with is that, you know, she she realizes that uh, because of the way this separatist movement that her father and, and mother set up, the way it was structured, the because the women did the cleanup both in the house and within the the social structure that they ex experienced, because the women were the organizers who actually knew where the things were, who took the notes, and we find out that you know the a lot of the things that her father has used to sort of build up his platform don't exist if the mother wasn't doing it, right? But the mother doesn't get her name. She doesn't get credit. She doesn't get any of that. And for Nigeria, she's like, listen, at one point her, her the black boy, and I, I love their story, their, their, their love affair, the, the way that they navigate is just so beautiful to me. But one of the things she realizes is that her father wants to now raise this boy, uh, Chris, and, and bring him up in the movement to be sort of the son he never had. And she sees them struggling because without the investment of the women in that space, the movement is, is finding it difficult to hold itself together. And, and so she's like, I'm not willing to abandon black men. I'm not willing to abandon my brothers because I am in community with them. I love them and I want them to love me with the same libera liberation uh, type of love that they love the ideas of being free. And so for her, I, I thought that it was such a, a great way of highlighting the, the need for us to have dialogue about that. And it gets difficult because as soon as you do, oh, you're trying to keep the black man down. No, you're trying to oppress the black woman. How about this? How about the way we understand gender roles was intentionally scripted by white people for white people and weaponized to preserve a racial hierarchy that would empower them to be at the top. And maybe none of that shit works for us, Ebi's a boy. It don't work for us. And Nigeria's life calls her to a space where she has to say, I'm not willing to abandon my brothers, but I'm also not willing to be dominated by them either. And until we can fit that part, until we can fix that, the movement, whether it's creating a separatist movement, whether it's creating black liberation, a back to Africa movement, a stay in America and thrive movement, until we fix that, where my brothers want freedom that doesn't include dominating me, we will forever be stuck in this space. Am, am I, did I draw from that your what you were intending or? Amen. Listen, thank you so much for bringing so much 
thought and understanding to this pages because that's what it took for me and you know I am your hallelujah corner right there you know what I mean? <laughs> not to say anything yes you summed it up perfectly and mm. and these are not the things I like I I know it on the surface but when you and, and it's not just knowing it it's not an intellectual understanding when you live it and I feel like you live it already it can easily yeah. pour out of you whether I'm writing it or whether you're reading it it's and, and that's part of the Dogon understanding like you have insight into those ideas and therefore when you pick you pick you pick it up you pick it up instantly mm. you know um and I, I wrote it it was easy for me to write it because I've lived it um, and it's it's not intellectual for me. It's not theory. It's right. lived experience. Um, I'm you know of a certain age for in my entire adult life has been dismantling ideas, deprogramming, and then programming, deprogramming and programming. You know, and mm. uh, we both have sixteen uh, year old boys, and I was thinking, you know, maybe pull my son out and put him in a Catholic school. He could learn some different a uh, discipline. <laughs> shirt and tie every morning and have them stand up straight but I'm like dang the Catholic institution <laughs> I cannot do it I cannot do it understanding what the Catholic Church has done to my home country in Haiti mm -hmm. so when I went to Catholic school understanding how I was invisible you know I had to go through that process of just I kind of want this for my son but I can't do it because I know too much you know yeah. so that sort of yeah. daily work is part of the lived experience that doesn't make this theoretical it makes it intrinsic and yeah. i know that it's intrinsic for you because you picked it up so easily and can give it back to me the way i intended so absolutely and i hope mm. your readers if they're your listeners and they already doing the reading and they already have some understanding i hope that they could come into those the pages of this book with that intrinsic understanding as well and hope that they can pass it on to their young people. My daughter cried and my other daughter highlighted the heck out of that book. And when I saw her do that and ask questions, I was like, thank God I did something right because they've already had those seeds planting where they have intrinsic understanding and they might pick it up. They have one level of understanding on the first read, might yeah. pick it up again, another, and just like I read my Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, every read gives me something else. And that's how I want to tell stories. And I know that's how you want to share information. Yeah. This Nigeria Jones book, I'm going to encourage everyone to get their hands on a copy. It's available at your independent booksellers, your black owned bookstores, and yeah, the, the big folks too. Uh, but Evie's a boy. We could have spent another three hours talking about this and I'm just, I'm grateful because this was for us. This yeah. was for those of us who are trying to create something different and don't want to get stuck making the same mistakes as folks who came before us. This is for those of us who as black parents want everything for our children to thrive. And we like, you know, I always say it's very difficult to raise Jamaican children in America. Very <laughs> difficult to raise Haitian children in America. They're going to be Jamaican American, Haitian American. And it's very difficult to create black separation in America because that tug is there, that, that pull is there and you, highlight all of those complexities so beautifully how can we're literally at the end of the show i'm just how can people follow you and connect with you and, and get access to more of the work that you've put out in the universe well i am at eb zoboy i-b-i-z-o-b-o-i -I -I on instagram only 
Um, but ebsaboy.net is my website, my books, all my books. This is my ninth book. All my books are on the shelves, wherever books are sold. Please support your independent bookstores, Black-owned bookstores, and your libraries. We are under attack. We didn't get to mm. talk about that, but we did talk about it last time, and it's gotten yeah. worse since the last time I spoke to you. Wow. <laughs> it is a tragedy. It is something going on out there. So, uh, you know, you, I know that you're aware that the Black Studies programs are under attack. Our books are under attack. So this is a time that you go out and seek Black books, Black information, listen to Black thought leaders like Laurie Daniels' favorites, and just... <laughs> It, it's it you know we need that information right now more than ever and what you as you're saying that what i'm realizing is that as we are under attack these types of communities and these types of efforts are going to proliferate because they often do under these types of circumstances we got to make sure we do them right or not right we got to make sure we do them better this time around eb thank you so much for being with us i'm going to hug you real hard in person thank you, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.